Psalm 1. I invite you to take a Bible and find Psalm 1. Today we embark on a journey through the selected Psalms, also known as the Psalter. The great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said in his introduction to the treasury of David, which is a exposition of the entire Psalter, he said, quote, The delightful study of the Psalms has yielded me boundless profit and ever-growing pleasure, unquote. And I trust that we, as a local ecclesia, a small assembly called out from the world to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust that we will be able to echo the words of the Prince of Preachers by the end of our journey. Our journey begins, like all other journeys ever taken, at the gateway, at the starting line, at the trailhead, so to speak. Psalm 1 is considered the opening entry to the entire Psalter. Not because of its number, not because it's Psalm 1, but because of its content. From the start, the reader is compelled to engage in some real soul searching. It requires the reader to self-reflect upon their life and who they are. It demands the reader to examine themselves, to see whether or not they are in the faith, to put it in the words of Paul. It challenges you, the reader, to stop. Stop thinking about your temporal problems and to cease worrying about other people and consider the path that you are on. What's revealed in Psalm 1 is the truth that every man, woman, and child, the truth that they're walking down one of two paths, the righteous path or the unrighteous path. And by taking an in-depth look at this masterfully written piece of ancient poetry, you will be able to discern what path you are on today. And you will learn where that path ends. So if you have a beating heart and a functioning brain, if you have hearing ears at this time, this message is for you. It's for your children. It's for your friends. And it's for every living soul that's standing upright. The breathing, true, inactive, inactive inerrant word of God is calling you to humble yourself this morning and to look in the mirror of Psalm 1 so that you can honestly assess your present spiritual condition. Let's read Psalm 1 together. And will you stand once again as we read Psalm 1? As Jesus said in the Gospels, let he who has an ear hear. The psalmist has written, inspired by God himself, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the Lord, the way of the wicked, will perish. Now, Father, may you bless the reading and preaching of your word. And may those who hear be convinced, rebuked, and exhorted. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, before we visit this text, since some of you missed the last hour, I need to briefly introduce to you the canonical book of Psalms so that we may accurately handle the word of truth in keeping with the apostolic command that we we are all bound to. As I taught during Equip, the Psalter is written in the form of Hebrew poetry. And so when you hear poetry from the scripture, don't think American or English poetry, where pretty much as long as the words rhyme, you have a poem. Not so much in God's book. What we find here are inspired poems that contain parallelisms, which simply is where you have the second thought restated with similar concepts or contrasted concepts. For example, in Psalm 2, verse 1, it reads, Why are the nations in an uproar? And why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Both those lines are rhetorical questions saying basically the same thing. That's an example of a synonymous parallelism. It's also very important to understand that there are seven types of psalms divided into five books, each ending with a doxology or a praise to the glory of God. They are lament psalms, which express the desperate need for salvation. There are thanksgiving psalms, which make the reader aware of God's blessings. There are enthronement psalms, which declare God's sovereign authority. There are pilgrimage psalms, which establish a mind for theocentric worship. There are royal psalms, which portray the Messiah as supreme ruler and judge. There are imprecatory psalms, which calls for God's wrath and judgment against his enemies. Then finally, there are wisdom psalms, which serve to instruct true believers with universal, immutable will of God. So keep these categories of psalms in mind as you read them for yourself and hear them preach, because they will help us interpret what God is saying accurately. The psalm that we will unpack this morning, this Lord's Day, is a wisdom psalm. And the wisdom, which is simply knowledge rightly applied, to be gleaned from Psalm 1, answers the most important question you will ever answer about yourself. Which path am I on? You are either on the righteous path, 
with the unrighteous path. Let's start out by looking at the righteous path in verses 1 to 3. He starts out by saying, how blessed is the man. In the original, the word translated blessed is plural. So literally it says, how blessedness is. Or you could see this opening phrase as, how are the many, many blessings is the man. So we understand then that the psalmist is not saying that the righteous man experiences a blessing for being righteous. He experiences numerous blessings all the time. Perhaps you've responded to the everyday cultural greeting of, greeting of our day. Hi, hi, how, how are you? Every time I walk into Starbucks, they say, good morning, how are you doing? And I'd probably say, thank you for asking, I'm blessed. Maybe, have you responded that way before? I'm blessed. And, and, what, you, and what, what you mean by that is you're happy at the present time with a, set of, with a set of circumstances you find yourself in. Or you just don't feel like telling the truth about how you really feel, which happens a lot too. But what you communicate by having that response is that your state of blessedness is dependent upon your happiness or happenstance. But our feeling of being blessed or happy should not depend upon life circumstances, which unexpectedly rises and falls like the waves in the sea. So what I'm getting at is this. If you're on the righteous path, you are always living in the present reality of abundant blessings despite what you're going through. How do you know? That the righteous person experiences numerous blessings. We can go to Ephesians 1. Hear what Paul says there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. The Bible does not call you to, quote unquote, count your blessings. That's cute. And that might be something you've heard before. But the biblical truth is that our blessings are uncountable. Paul says we have every blessing. And the psalmist is saying the same thing. He's saying that the joy that belongs to the righteous man are immeasurable. This blessing or innumerable joy belongs only to those who walk down the righteous path. And what is that path? Well, first, as a master teacher, the psalmist tells us in the form of three negatives what the righteous path is not. And these three negatives can be summed up in this way. The one on the righteous path actively separates him or herself from the world. Verse 1, look at the first negative. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You're blessed. You're experiencing the blessednesses of being righteous if you do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked, it refers to secular thinking. 
humanistic ideology, atheistic agendas, psychological theory, or philosophical quandary. Now, we can learn from unbelievers natural skill and talent. For instance, I can learn military tactics and leadership from the most God-hating pagan on the face of the earth. But he cannot counsel me or counsel you with regard to spiritual matters. He cannot tell me anything at all about how to properly love and lead my family. He has no capacity for that. He cannot counsel me with regard to how to handle hardship, depression, and suffering. Can't. He cannot counsel me regarding ultimate truth and eternity. Because in those matters, he has zero wisdom. Only those whom fear God and love God have any meaningful, wise counsel to offer you. So do not, any under, any, under any circumstances, seek counsel from unbelievers regarding matters of the soul. They will lead you astray at worst. At best, they will confound you. And it will contradict the word of God. If you seek counsel from unbelievers, you are walking the wrong path. Do not walk in a counsel of the wicked. Secondly, the psalmist also says, How blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners. This refers to behavior or joining in on the sinful activities of the world. The psalmist is saying, in effect, do not be swept up and enticed by the ways of the sinful men. You guys know their ways, don't you? You know their ways? Some of you who were converted later in life stood in this path like me. Some of you who were privileged to grow up in a Christian household in a decent church don't know the path of sinners, and that's great. That's a blessing. You don't need to know by experience. Because you were still in need of a Savior, no less than the most immoral sinner, number one. And you can read about the ways of the world in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul describes the ways of the world. He, 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 de, he describes the way of the sinner. Do not be deceived, Paul says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's the way of the sinner. And those who stand in that path and habitually practice those things, the psalmist is saying that you who are righteous on the righteous path do not associate with them. Be separate from those things. So be very careful and discerning when it comes to who you spend time with, 
Because if unbelievers are your best friends, you will be standing in their path. Which means they will influence you and expose you to the sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to this. You shouldn't be enticed into their path. You should entice them to walk down your path. Which hopefully is the righteous one. If you want to be friends with unbelievers, you invite them into your home. You meet them in places where there's no debauchery. You bring them to church. You serve them. You don't go down their path. Bring them to ours. Do not stand in the path of sinners. Thirdly, the psalmist also says, How blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Boy, this is just as applicable today as the other two. In the Hebrew, the word translated scoffer or mocker, some translations may say, also can mean ambassador. So a scoffer is one who not only disagrees with an idea, but he is also one who considers himself an ambassador for the opposition. When it comes to spiritual reality, the scoffer is the one who is an ambassador of the devil. He represents his ideas, his agenda, and his ways. And the Bible has plenty to say about scoffers. Proverbs 19.29 Judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. Proverbs 29.8 Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away from wrath. In Proverbs 3.34 says that God scoffs at the scoffers. Jude 18, he warns, in the last time there will be scoffers following after their ungodly lusts. Peter also warns, 2 Peter 3, in the last days scoffers will come scoffing. These scoffers in biblical times were those who thought it was stupid to worship a nobody from nowhere, who found himself nailed on a cross like a common criminal for claiming to be God. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writing to the Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles? The scoffers today are those who propagate the live evolution, which excludes a creator. The scoffers there are the cults that deny the deity of Christ. And the scoffers are those who are part of the massive explosion of progressive liberals toddying themselves as agnostics proudly. Those are the scoffers. And if you're on the righteous path, listen, you must passionately rebuff their doctrine. You must adamantly deny scoffers any credence. You don't say, ah, you know, maybe you have a point. Maybe you're right. 
And you must vehemently refuse to have company with those who mock and taunt holy things. That's what the psalmist means by not sitting in the seat of scoffers. So to sum up verse 1, the righteous man vigilantly, vigilantly, excuse me, vigilantly stands watch over what influences his thought life, his active life, and social life. And so we've heard by now what walking down the righteous path is not. Now in verse 2, we find out what it is. In verse 2 it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is to say, no longer does this man consider a man's godly counsel. No longer does he conduct himself according to man's standards. No longer does he ridicule and undermine spiritual truth. He now has affections and hunger for God's word. It's a forced effect. It's not a forced affection. It's willing, present, ongoing desire for the bread of life. The written word excites him. It does not bore him. It exhilarates him. It does not annoy him. It feeds and uplifts his soul and never confounds or discourages him. The one who is bored by the word of God is an indication he's on the unrighteous path. The one that despises the preaching of the word can be sure He's on the unrighteous path. It's when the word of God is longed for. And when he finds pleasure in hearing it. And knowing it and reading it and understanding what God has revealed. Points to true salvation. Not only does the blessed man delight in the law. The psalmist also says he meditates on it day and night. Now, meditation is not something you hear about very often, probably because it has a Eastern religious connotation in our time. In fact, if you Google meditation, you'll find nothing even close resembling biblical meditation. You'll find an excess of information regarding, quote-unquote, transcendental meditation. You guys ever heard of that? Which kind of has connections with the very popular activity of yoga and uh, it comes from a pagan practice of achieving inner peace by emptying your mind and focusing on some kind of mantra repeatedly true godly biblical meditation has nothing to do with that nothing biblical meditation is this it means to reflect It means to process. It means to replay over and over again in your mind. It's like you chew on it to get all of the nutrients and taste out of something you can get. So contrary to Eastern meditation, true meditation involves filling your mind with truth and munching on it. And the Psalter 
the psalmist is definite about what to meditate on. Not meaningless words or phrases, but on the words of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And as you read the word and hear the word preached, you should be replaying it in your mind. You should go home after sermons and actually think about what was preached. You should study your Bible and not forget it after you close it right away. You should be discussing these things, trying to understand them on a deeper level. You should be contemplating it and working it into the very fabric of your soul. And at the end of verse 2, the psalmist tells us when we should do this. We should do it all the time, day and night, as a lifestyle. One pastor and Old Testament scholar said that meditation is to your inner person what digestion is to your outer person. So hungering for and reflecting upon the word of God every day is the path of the righteous. How do you know you're on the righteous path? That you have a hunger for God's word and you reflect on it. Are you on that path this morning? Do you have a genuine hunger for the Word of God? Or does it bore you? Do you meditate on the words of God? Do you chew on it? Or do you lay it aside like another useless book? If you're on on this righteous path, the psalmist gives us a vivid illustration to look at ourselves in. Verse 3 says he will be like a tree. He will be like a tree. This is a simile uh, that the psalmist uses to depict a man or woman on the righteous path. And understand that a tree, it's a strong, living, healthy plant. It's like a little shrub. It's meant to symbolize strength and fruitfulness. This tree has been transplanted and it continually produces fruit. It is planted by streams of water. Symbolizing a man who has been uprooted and firmly replanted. And we know this because by nature we all understand this, right? By nature we are like dead trees. By nature, we are in need of being replanted. This figure of speech refers to the new birth. It refers to sovereign regeneration because trees do not plant themselves, do they? It's a picture of God permanently moving, transferring a dead sinner to a place where it can live and thrive. Notice it says, the tree has been planted by streams of water. Not one stream, but streams, which represents the living, nurturing effects that the law of God has on our soul. The man of God is like a tree that's been replanted on the fertile soil, being watered unceasingly by the Word of God. Now, 
not only is this tree being sustained by streams of water, it's thriving. It's just not there, surviving, barely, like some of the trees we see around here, right? This tree is thriving, it says in verse 3, which yields its fruit in its season. We get that comparison, don't we? I mean, as a church, I think we understand the fruit of the Spirit. I preached through it in, Gen- in, in Galatians 5. We understand that as Christians, we produce fruit. And just as living trees produce fruit, so do the righteous. The fruit here represents the fruit of Christian character, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of ministry, the fruit of sanctification. Understand that there is no such thing as a Christian that is not constantly struggling and growing. There is no such thing as a believer living in boastful, constant rebellion to the law of God. Any of it. Those on the righteous path yield fruit. And the psalmist goes on. Its leaf does not wither. Which is to say that the tree is always lush. It's vibrant. It's like an evergreen. It does not experience the ugly deadness of fall. Now, I know some of you like fall. The pretty colors and stuff. And and, and it is beautiful for, for a little while, isn't it? But when the leaves fall off and the leaves die and you're out there raking leaves and you think, I'd rather be doing something most of my time, you look and you see these barren trees. And to me, it just reminds me of death. But this tree does not do that. This tree is always lush. And applied to the righteous man on the righteous path, this means his profession of faith does not fade. His works do not stop. He doesn't get sick at church and say, I need a break. I need away from all those church people. No. His faith strengthens. He does not cease to serve the Lord. Even in suffering and affliction, he resists the temptation to sin and forsake his Lord. And at the end of this verse, the psalmist adds a catch-all phrase. Whatever he does, he prospers. I mean, this covers all the bases, doesn't it? Whatever he does, he prospers. Prospers means to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. That's what it means when you're prospering. You are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. What were you created for? Ephesians 2.10 says it plainly. You were created for good works. You were created for good works. Now, I have to remind myself all the time. Because just like anybody, I start thinking, man, is life just growing up, going to school, working, retiring, and dying? I mean, don't we get tempted with that sort of thinking? And don't we wrestle with that? But the Bible says that we're here to do good works for God. 
And so whenever I start to think like that, I think, no, God has me here to work for him. I am a slave of my master, and as a slave to his master, all I care about is what he wants me to do. So you're not here to go get education. You're not here to be successful, right? You're here to serve the Lord. You're here to make disciples. And there are many ways to apply good works, but keep that big picture in mind. You're not prospering unless you're fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, and that is to do good works. In and out of the context of the local church. This is the way of blessing, or the way, the path of righteousness. If you're on that path, you guard your heart, guard your mind. Find ongoing delight in the Word. And because you have been born again, firmly replanted, keep on producing fruits of the Spirit in keeping with repentance. That's the righteous path. Now, by stark stark contrast, let's look at the psalmist's picture of the unrighteous path. Verses 4 to 6. Verse 4 begins with, The wicked are not so. The wicked man is the one who's never been transplanted. He lives in a barren wasteland. His life is like a lifeless tree in the middle of the desert, producing no fruit at all. The wicked represents those who have never been genuinely born again. Now, here's something to understand as faithful churchgoers, okay? The wicked can be those whom are outwardly righteous, but inwardly, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, full of dead man's bones. Like the Pharisees. In our day, it would be those whom boast about their humanitarian aid, giving, charitable giving, volunteer work, community service, and of course, a religious lifestyle. But those people could have never truly bowed the knee to Jesus. You must understand... Now, some some Christians struggle with this, okay? So listen. You must understand that unless he repent and believe the gospel, two conditions for salvation. Repent, turn from sin, change your mind about yourself and your sin, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Unless somebody has done that, even the most kind-hearted, servant-minded, fun-loving, hard-working, law-abiding, donation-giving, self-depreciating, self-sacrificing individual is wicked in the sight of God. God spoke through Isaiah that all of man's works are like filthy rags. can't save us. If something is done for the glory of man and not God, it's sin. And an unconverted man is enslaved to his sin, his natural state. It's plain. Therefore, all he can do is sin. You understand that? 
that before you were converted, it's not that you sinned a couple times. All you ever did was sin. And that's every unbeliever. That's every wicked man. And though, though, like I said before, we can marvel and we can appreciate the common grace revealed in the gifts and abilities and accomplishments of countless unbelievers throughout the ages. But you need to be careful that they don't become your heroes, that they don't become your role models, or else you will have enlisted wicked people to influence you the most. Obviously, the wicked can also refer to evil, immoral men who flaunt their rebellion, who are unashamed of it. Those who mock, curse, blaspheme, and live as if God never gave them a law to obey. They are characterized by the things the psalmist says the righteous do not do. The wicked do walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do stand in the path of sinners. And they do sit in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 4 that the immoral and phony men are like chaff. They're not trees, firmly planted. They're chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, a little background is needed here. In ancient times, during the harvest, the farmer would take his grain on a high hill and he would make a threshing floor. He did this on a hill because that's where the wind was the strongest. And the grain, which was just harvested from the fields, would be tossed into the air with a pitchfork-like tool. And as that would happen, the wind would blow the chaff away, and the heavy grain would fall onto the threshing floor to be collected for food. The chaff would be separated from the grain this way because nobody wants the chaff the chaff is absolutely worthless and good for nothing can't be eaten can't be sold so get what the psalmist is saying here those in the wicked path are going to be separated from the righteous and counted as worthless Verse 5 tells us what that separation will be like. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, meaning that they will not stand with acceptance. They will be removed away, swept away, blown away like the chaff, done away with like good-for-nothing waste. Instead of stand... uh, the Holman renders this verse as the wicked will not survive the judgment. because, And that's helpful because we know that the wicked will be in the judgment. They will stand before God, but they won't survive it. They will fall. Which is why every single man, woman, and child, every single human being must deal with the question, am I on the righteous path? Or the unrighteous path. And how do I know? Two questions. Everyone needs to ask. 
And not just once. Scripture calls us to examine ourselves, present tense. Do it often. As I've alluded to already, not only will the wicked not survive the judgment, they will be separated from the righteous. Note verse 5. Second half of verse 5. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now this truth is reiterated and retold in uh, the parable of the wheat and tares uh, spoken from Jesus. I'm not going to have you turn there or read the whole thing for the sake of time. But in Matthew 13, let me remind you, Jesus told his disciples about a landowner who sowed good seed in his field, and then an enemy came along and sowed tares, which are a type of weed, among the good seed. And so the slaves come to the landowner and they say, landowner, what shall we do with this situation? And at the harvest time, the landowner tells the slaves to gather up the tares, which represent unbelieving wicked men, and bind them in bundles. Gather them all up together. And Jesus says, burn them up. Burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat representing the righteous. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus. That the final judgment Jesus was trying to say here is sinners and saints will be eternally separated. And verse 6 sheds more light on our eschatology. Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, God is intimately and lovingly Involved in the lives of those on the righteous path. He doesn't just know who you are. He is involved in your life. He has paved your way. He has set it before you. And he keeps you on it. But in contrast to the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Meaning that the wicked will undergo eternal punishment. Eternal destruction, eternal devastation. And you know what this is referring to. The Bible is replete with the doctrine that wicked, unconverted men will spend eternity in the lake of fire with no hope of escaping. Hell is for real. And it should be a doctrine on our minds frequently. Because it causes us to be thankful for being saved from it. Amen? And it should motivate us to go to work. To rescue sinners on the path to hell. So I ask you again, which path are you on today? Are you on the righteous or unrighteous path? And how do you know? I love you guys. I know most of you pretty well. I'm pretty sure that all of you would say you're on the righteous path, but how do you know? What evidence is there in your life and in your doctrine to indicate that you are known intimately by God? I challenge you with that today. If there be no evidence of 
honest yearning for the word of God and good works of service, then you may be on the wrong path. And as the psalmist puts it, that path will lead to eternal separation from the righteous and from God's presence. And I don't do this very often, but I should. If you are under conviction at the moment, or if you're unsure about your salvation, come talk to me after the service. Come talk to me after the service. Don't be afraid to ask any questions. Come talk to Jeff. Go talk to Aaron. Because as men who desire to be leaders and counselors and preachers, we do it for God's glory, but we also do it for your benefit. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that you've given us direction for revealing to us that there are two paths. May we all examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if we are in the faith, to examine the evidence of our conversion, because your word has told us that it's not our profession that saves us. We don't know we're saved, Lord, by simply professing your name, because You've told us that in the end, there will be many who come to you and say, Lord, Lord, and then you will say to them, I do not know you. Depart from me. So we know that we need to examine ourselves, Lord, and we need, we need to humble ourselves, and we need to see what path we're really on. May these people be willing to walk down the righteous path. May you cause them to repent from sitting in the seat of scoffers or taking worldly counsel or standing in the path of sinners. And may you cause all of us to delight in your word and meditate on your law day and night. May we we be motivated by the truth that the wicked will be blown away like chaff at at the judgment. And may that motivate us to serve you. In Jesus' name.